If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How do you tell the story of a civilization as rich, varied and ancient as China? Well, in his latest book, The Story of China, Michael Wood argues that listening to the voices of individuals down the centuries can offer enlightening windows on Chinese history. In this talk, first delivered as part of our virtual lecture series, he introduces us to five of those voices. Uh, Tonight I'm going to talk about China a country that you can't keep out of the news right now. China is the subject of my new book, The Story of China. It's been a long time in gestation. I I first visited China in the early 80s and first filmed in China in the late 80s. In the last seven years, made a dozen films. Um, And I think in making those films, my concern has always been, number one, that the TV audience should enjoy being in China and enjoy being with the people of China. It's very important to me that. I've also been very keen to show that Chinese history uh, needn't be impenetrable, uh, impossibly difficult to get hold of. It's stories of incredible drama and creativity and humanity, larger than life characters uh, that match and surpass any British and European history, uh, from scientists and travellers and poets, men and women, of course, peasants and emperors, uh, and at least a couple of peasants who became emperors. So uh, these are these are wonderful stories uh, which illuminate the the enduring values of Chinese civilization, if I can put it that way, uh, which is my real theme tonight. I'll come back to those values later. Um, 
I've tried to write the book, I suppose you'd say, with a filmmaker's eye. Um, in a nutshell, it's the kind of book that I always wanted to read about China. I was delighted a few days ago to have a, a reader in Brazil who was reading the book for a top publisher there saying, oh, it's, it's like a novel. Uh, that's the flow that I wanted to get out of the story, seeing the whole pattern of a nation's history as a, a, an amazing kind of a human drama. So um, that's what I was out to do. The grand narrative and the close up at the bottom, looking at the world from below as well as from the top down, from the regions and the villages as well as from the, the capitals, um, and giving a, song, a strong sense of the landscape too. Uh, and full of the, the sense that the, the local history, the, the traditional culture of China, which I think many of us thought in the early 80s had gone forever under the onslaught of communism, actually is still there, as you saw in that amazing scene with the Farmers Festival uh, in Hernan, with a million people gathering to see the goddess Niuwa. So the book also has that sense of living culture and many families contributed to the uh, the memories that are in the book um i also wanted the book to be really up to date with uh, the latest archaeological discoveries the latest documentary discoveries uh, there's new and very significant leaked papers from the tiananmen square massacre in 1989 that came out only last summer that are in the book uh, and at the other end of China's history, incredible letters from the Silk Road in the Han Dynasty and letters from the ordinary soldiers of the Qin army, the real life terracotta army, uh, writing back home like the Vindolanda tablets on Hadrian's Wall, only far more detailed and more expressive. And I'll, I'll read you a tiny little bit here. A terracotta army soldier writing home to mum in the 220s BC. Dear mum. Our unit is about to attack rebel strongholds in Hernan. How long it will take, how many of us will be captured or wounded, no one knows. It's very sweet of him writing back home to mum, not mentioning the fact that quite a few of them will be killed. And then there's a PS. But when you get this letter, mum, can you go to Anlu Market and get some cheap silk cloth? And if you've got time, run me up an unlined skirt and a shirt and send it with the cash that I asked you for. If the cloth is too dear, just send the cash and I'll run the clothes up myself. By the way, how's auntie and sister and aunt Gushu? Is the marriage still taking place? Magic, isn't it? That's the magic of history, the voices of the past. Any of us who love history, when you, when you search in the past, the things that you most want to touch on are the voices of the people of the past. In what way were they like us? In what way were they different? Um, how did they respond to the often cataclysmic events of their time? Uh, that sense of the voices is the thing that I've tried to um, run through the book. And tonight I've chosen five, five voices, one of my favorite voices through China's history to give you a sense of how individual lives weave with the grand narrative, and also how in these individual voices, you gather things, crucial things about the values, the core values of the civilization. I've chosen five writers. The first one's a poet, 
poetry is uh, one of the great arts in Chinese civilization. It's often forgotten that the China is the oldest living tradition of poetry in the world. Great poetic anthology of the Book of Songs, uh, going back to the 11th century BC, songs of love, of war, and labor, and agricultural feastings and festivals, songs about the human heart, um, are far older than the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, poets, men and women too. Um, and the poets have been the voices of Chinese culture all the way through. There have been many great ages, but by common consent, the Tang Dynasty is the greatest. That's between the sort of 600s and the 900s in um, British history, the, the age of Beowulf. Uh, and uh, that's the favorite period of Chinese people. I once did a Vox Pops with a film crew in among the crowds of tourists in the Shanghai Expo, just asking everybody, what's your favorite period in Chinese history? A few said the Song Dynasty, quite right, it's mine but most said the tongue. And why? Because China went out to the world, and the world came to China, but also the great civilization, the poetry. 40,000 poems survived from the Tang dynasty alone. Incredible, isn't it? Men and women. The greatest of them is the poet Du Fu, lived from 712 to 770. Um, people in the UK in our audience may have seen the um, film that we made about Du Fu's life in April, here in the UK, with Sir Ian McKellen doing, very affectingly doing the readings from the poet. Um, in the film, Professor Stephen Owen, great expert on Dufu, has just published the, the first full translation uh, in, in English of Dufu's poems. So there's, there's Dante, there's Shakespeare, and there's Dufu. And why? Because they're the great poets who help create the emotional vocabulary of the culture, he says. And really, since the 11th century, Dufu has been regarded as the greatest poet in China. Uh, he was a Protean talent. The comparison with Shakespeare isn't misplaced. Uh, he writes about friendship, about love, about the family, about the stuff of life, all the things that the Chinese people love, eating together, drinking. Um, but above all, he's the poet historian. He lived through the cataclysmic fall of the Tang Dynasty in the 750s, a gigantic disaster which marked China forever, um, in which 30 million Chinese people were either killed in war, died of famine, or driven out as refugees, according to the Tang Dynasty censuses themselves. Uh, it was a, a tremendous blow to the high civilization of the Tang. And Du Fu experienced that at first hand, although he was born into a wealthy, middle, quite wealthy middle class, he became a refugee, was driven from place to place, um, and experienced what we see on our TV screens in Syria and the Yemen and so on, and made his art about that. He wrote about the patience and suffering of the ordinary people, and they've loved him forever for that, and still do. Uh, their betrayal by indolent rulers, corrupt rulers, Portraits of people who've lost everything. I think a British uh, um, readers would look at him and perhaps catch some of that magical ventriloquy that Kipling does, for example, of the ordinary British soldiers of the Victorian Empire, you know, Tommy Atkins and Danny Deaver on the road to Mandalay. Dufu does that with the, the poor, poor rank and file soldiers of the Tang dynasty. But he also, you get a 
sense of the tragic destiny of the times, which you would parallel perhaps with um, some of the great First World War poets, Apollinaire, on the verge of the disaster in August 1914, some of the great European poets, Georg Trakl and others who, who died in the war and who had that sense of the values of European civilization had been devastated by uh, the First World War. Or W.H. Auden on the 1st of September 1939, again seeing uh, the end of an age almost, a new world waiting to be born which nobody, where nobody knew how it would go, but the omens were bad. Um, Dufu experienced all that. He understood that you can mourn as deeply for an ideal as you can for a loved one. And, and that's what he writes about in his greatest poetry. Uh, and then his themes become universal. When he goes home, he's moved his family out for safety from the capital to stay in a village to the north. He finally gets home having walked all night on foot and discovers that his baby son has died of starvation. And, um, and then he becomes every man. I am ashamed of being a father, so poor that I caused my son to starve to death. How could I have known that the autumn harvest would not be enough to save the poor from disaster? And yet I am one of the privileged. If my life is so bitter, how much worse is the life of the common man? I find myself when I read that poem thinking of Shakespeare's King Lear discovering what it is like as the state disintegrates around him to become a poor, naked, unaccommodated man. And what does Dufu's poetry tell us about China? Well, he was a Confucian. His cultural roots, he tells us, were in those values of loyalty to the state, of course, providing the state was run virtuously, but the core values, civility, benevolence, virtue, truthfulness, morality, ideas deeply internalized by the culture for more than two millennium, and still there, it seems to me. Um, and because of that, although he died in total obscurity, um, by the 11th century, Dufu had come to be seen as the great poet and has been ever since, expressing what it means to be Chinese in the greatest words in the Chinese language, as, as Stephen Owen says. And he's still taught at school today. You, every Chinese person learns a couple of his poems. To that, let me add one thing. Thinking about his Confucianism, China was not a religious society in our sense. You know, of course, Taoism, Buddhism, many different folk religions and cults were everywhere and are enjoying a, a massive revival today in China. But there was no all-embracing system of morality given by a religion or theology as there, there was in Western monotheism. They got that from Confucianism, but Confucius wasn't concerned with the gods or the afterlife. He was concerned about how human beings live life in society. A proof, if proof were needed, that you don't have to have a theological system with a supreme God to have a moral order in society. Recently, Tom Holland <clears throat> has written a brilliant book called Dominion, arguing that we in the West, all of us Europeans and Westerners, still think like Christians. Well, the Chinese still think like Confucians. And Dufu, in poetry, best expresses that. 
Okay, <clears throat> so that's my first voice. My second voice, I had to put in a historian, of course. And anyway, history is no less important in Chinese culture than uh, poetry. A tra continuous tradition of narrative goes back over 2,500 years. The greatest, uh, first great text, 1000 BC. History had a unique status in, in China because it formed the official narrative, if you like. You, you got mavericks like you do in the West, like Herodotus and Thucydides, but in the main, the aim was to underwrite the state. But it must tell the truth. It must express moral judgments on good and bad rule. And that was the reason why the tyrannical first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi, the emperor of the Terracotta army, um, ordered the historians to be buried alive and the history books to be burned. Fearing the power of the past to discredit the present, <laughs> the anxiety of tyrants of all ages, I guess. So my historian lived in the Han Dynasty around 100 BC, the time of the Roman Republic, a century or so after the book burnings and the killings of the historians. His name was Sir Martien, and his father was what we would call a historian, I guess, you know, the keeper of the imperial calendar. And his father had planned a narrative of the lost history of China, the history before the book burnings. But he never finished it. And on his deathbed, he made his son swear that he would complete it. But then, Surma fell foul of the emperor, Wu Di. He spoke up for a man who he believed had been wrongly condemned, and the furious emperor condemned him. He was expected then to commit suicide because the only way out was to accept horrendous humiliation of castration in the humid warmth of the silkworm chamber. Any gentleman would have killed himself, of course, but Sir Marcien had sworn to his father that he would complete the great work of history and he accepted the grim punishment. And he tells that story to a friend in what is Perhaps the most famous letter in Chinese literature. Let me read you a little bit. You get his voice immediately. I've given myself up to my useless writings. I've gathered and brought together the old traditions of the world which were scattered and lost. I've examined the deeds and the events of the past and investigated the principles behind their success and failure, their rise and decline. But before I'd finished my rough draft, I met with this calamity. And it's because I hadn't finished it that I submitted to the extreme penalty without rancor. But when I've finished it, if it can be handed down so that people may read it and appreciate it in towns and in villages, then even though I should suffer a thousand mutilations, what regret should I have? A man has only one death. That death may be as weighty as Mount Tai or as light as a feather. It all depends on the way he uses it. I don't expect all you historians are there to give that much for your art, but amazing, isn't it? So a century after the first emperor's book burnings and killing of the historians, Sir Martien reconstructed the centuries of pre-Qin 
history. It's one of the great intellectual endeavors of Chinese culture, the foundation of all chronological inquiries into Chinese prehistory. And the amazing archeological discoveries of the 20th century started almost exactly a century ago in Anyang have proved him even the order of the prehistoric kings was accurate. And before we leave him, I can't resist reading you a little bit of his fantastic passage about the, the tyrannical first emperor himself. It's about the famous tomb guard, guarded by the terracotta warriors. When the first emperor ascended the throne, the digging and the preparation began. 700,000 men were sent there from all over the empire. They dug down deep to underground springs, pouring copper to place the outer casing of the coffin. Workmen were instructed to make automatic crossbows primed to shoot at intruders. Mercury was used to simulate the hundred rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow River and the Great Sea and set to flow mechanically. Above the heavens were depicted, below the geographical features of the land, candles were made of mermaid's fat, which is calculated to burn and not extinguish for a long time. And the second emperor, his son, said, it is inappropriate for the wives of the late emperor who have no sons to be set free. And he ordered that they should accompany his dead father, and a great many of them died. And after the burial, it was suggested it would be a serious breach if the craftsmen who constructed the tomb and knew of the treasures inside it were to divulge those secrets. And so after the funeral ceremonies, the inner passages and doorways were blocked and the exit sealed, trapping the workers and the craftsmen inside. No one could escape. And then trees and vegetation were planted on the tomb mound, so it resembled a natural hill. <laughs> great, I hope you agree. It's just literally fantastic, isn't it? And of course the tomb is still there, guarded by the terracotta army, the inner tomb itself, still unopened awaits investigation. Greatest archaeological mystery in the world. That's my historian. My third voice, I've chosen a woman's voice and an autobiography. Chinese literature from the very earliest times is self-reflexive in the way that few other cultures are. There's no time in the last 2,500 years when Chinese men and women don't produce literature which reveals their inner heart, if I can put it that way. And my writer now is a poet, Li Qing Zhao, who lived from 1084 to 1155. I've loved her since I was a student. Uh, when I got hold of a book by that friend and mentor of the San Francisco beat poets, Kenneth Rexroth, who published her first in an anthology called The Orchid Boat, you can still get it, and then a selection of her poetry in a, in a second volume. Uh, is hers the first autobiographical writing by a woman in world literature? I don't know the answer to that, but maybe somebody out there does. Li Qingzhao lived in a fantastically sophisticated culture, the Song Dynasty, maybe the most advanced society that had so far existed on earth. With the invention of printing, there was a vast expansion of publishing. 
encyclopedias, science, botany, astronomy, cookbooks, even um, foodie manuals and health and lifestyle books. There's a book published in 1085 called How Old People Can Live Happy, Healthy Lives in Old Age with tips on diet, exercise and psychology. And an updated edition of it is still in print, at least the one that I bought in Kaifong 2013 printing. So great, isn't it? Anyway, that's her Li Jingjiao's world. And as a, a, a writer, a female writer, she worked in a tradition which had encouraged women always to, to write poetry and express their inner feelings. Although there were men who thought that that was one thing, but they should keep it to themselves and not appear in print. But that wasn't her view. She's a scintillating mind and brilliantly self-reflexive. Talks, talks a lot about her own insight and her own experience. Talks about her addiction to board games. By my nature, I love board games. I can lose myself in board games, play all night long without thought or sleep. Glass of wine or two, one gathers. All my life I've played such games, and whoever I play against, I usually win. In her autobiography, Li Qingzhao interrogates her disillusionment with her own first marriage, which began as a love marriage, but then dwindled because she didn't produce a son for her husband. And then after her husband's death during the wars of the 1120s, um, she bitterly describes her abusive second marriage with the self-awareness of a woman of extraordinary intelligence and sensitivity. Um, she took her second husband to court to get a divorce, which caused uh, a huge scandal in the, the patriarchal world of the song, as you can tell. She also wrote political poetry. Is she the first great or even the first female political poet in world literature? I don't know. She lived through the tragic fall of the Northern Song, the fall of Kaifeng, and uh, betrayed, China betrayed as she saw it by the complacent government of men. Here she is then, talking to the men, translated by the great Kenneth Rexroth. You should have been more cautious better educated by the past. The ancient bamboo books of history were there for you to study, but you didn't see. Times change, power passes. It is the pity of the world. And the hearts of the vicious were deep chasms of evil. Wow, <laughs> one can only say wow to Li Qingzhao. What a, what a person. And there's a wonderful biography came out recently in English by Ronald Egan called The Burden of Female Talent. If you want to follow more on this brilliant, brilliant person. Um, and of course, her critique of government isn't rare in Chinese history. We have this view of a kind of monolithic autocracy, but there's a constant dialogue at times and at times criticism of the nature of rulership although attacks on the system itself don't really start until the 17th century but this brings me to my fourth voice the emperor the emperor an emperor emperors of course have been 
very important figures in Chinese history. And more than that, the very figure of the emperor, the sage, all-seeing, wise ruler, um, at least that's the ideal, the one who holds the mandate of heaven, has run right through Chinese history. You can see even in the cult of Mao Zedong, the communist leader of China after 1949, um, that mythological figure of the great all-seeing, all-wise ruler still working itself up. The voice I've chosen for the emperor is the great Qing dynasty emperor, Kangxi, who lived from 1654 to 1722. He's the longest ruling emperor, 61 years. And for me, his autobiographical writings are well among the greatest of all ruler autobiographies, along with perhaps Babur, the founder of the, um, the Mughal dynasty in India. And Kangxi is famous 16 maxims about how to be a good citizen, about civility and benevolence, loyalty kindness to your neighbors, paying your taxes on time, of course, um, were, were read out in every village in China right up to the beginning of the 20th century. Amazing. It's very realistic about the nature of rule, of course. They were tough people, people like Kangxi, giving life to people and killing people. These are the powers an emperor has, he says. But here's his voice in a late night reflection in old age, on the nature of rulership. Before I die, I'm letting you know my sincerest feelings. This is particularly addressed to his sons as well as his counsellors. My sincerest feelings. The rulers of the past all took reverence for heaven's laws and reverence for the ancestors as the fundamental principles in ruling the country. To have been sincere in reverence for the heavens and for the ancestors entails the following. Be kind to men from afar. Keep the able ones near to you. Nourish the people. Think of the prophet of all as being the real prophet and the mind of the whole country as being the real mind. Be considerate to the officials and act as a father to the people. Protect the state before danger appears. Govern well before there is any disturbance. Always be diligent, always be careful, and maintain the balance between principle and expedience so that long-range plans can be made for the country. That's all there is to it. I think we could do with some of that wisdom at the moment, don't you think? Governing well before you run into trouble. It's a good lesson, even for today's politicians. So I hope you can see that these vivid portraits, the real men and women of Chinese history, um, and there's lots, lots more in the book, um, give you a wonderful sense of how lives and the reflections of the people themselves on their lives, even the soldiers of the terracotta army sending writing home to mum give you a sense of how the history interweaves with the lives of the people. The last example I've chosen 
we come to the revolutionary epoch of the late 19th century, which launched the great Chinese revolution of the 20th. It's a long, a revolution in long gestation. John Fairbanks, great sinologist in America, wrote a book called The Great Chinese Revolution, 1800 to 1950. That's the way historians sometimes see these things, isn't it? A long development. I'm once tempted to say the dust has not yet settled on the revolution of 1949. Before I introduce this, my last voice, another woman's voice, say this, politics are at the very heart of Chinese civilization. That sounds really obvious, doesn't it? But um, I'm sometimes tempted to say that where uh, the bent of Indian civilization, of Indian literature is spiritual and metaphysical. China's is political. Even the great archaic myths, myths the yellow emperor, King Yu, um, unlike, say, the Greek myths, are political. The state is not only a historical fact, but an imaginal construct that has permeated people's lives and minds and dreams for millennia. China, as we all know, is the oldest continuous state. We imagine it's had um, an immemorial stability, at least until the 20th century, dynasty unrolling after dynasty in a rather sedate way. But in the past, in fact, China had huge ruptures, huge cataclysmic periods of breakdown when it was by no means certain that China would be united again. Uh, it could have ended up like Europe today with 20 different countries. As it says in the famous novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, it is a truth universally acknowledged that every empire that falls apart uh, will come together again. And every empire that is united will fall apart. So the state is preeminent. Better a year of tyranny than a day of anarchy. In 1979, when Deng Xiaoping went to um, to the States, he he moaned to Jimmy Carter. Sorry, Jimmy Carter moaned to Deng Xiaoping at one public event, where they were attended by demonstrators about U.S. politics. And Deng said to him, "You think so? You should try ruling China." He later told Bush Senior that if we had one man, one vote here. The result would be chaos. We'd collapse into civil war. In China, order is everything. Since the first emperor then, the pull between harsh authoritarian rule and Confucian virtue and humanity has swayed back and forth in the balance. And attempts to alter that balance were all already being made in the early 17th century. Um, great movements then for political reform. Uh, the great writer Huang Songxi said, uh, without the rule of law, you cannot have the rule of man. It's a perennial, perennial question in Chinese history. So those conflicts and trajectories came to a head in the 19th century when the collision with the West and Western ideals and ideas um, really brought the issues of China's political tradition into the open. And one of the many trajectories that arose at that time, leaving aside the obvious ones, political reform and so on, was feminism. 
The star writers like Chiu Jin, 1875 to 1907, who was executed in the town square of her hometown in Shaoxing. Why can't women be heroes too? She wrote. Less well-known, the mysterious He Jun, born in around 1884, who wrote her feminist manifesto at the very moment that the suffragettes were fighting in Britain. After a brief, fiery career in the First World War period, she disappears. What happened to her afterwards is simply not known. How much of China's unfolding tragedy as the Republican era disintegrated into civil war and then Japanese invasion, then the Second World War, and finally the communist takeover. How much she saw of that, um, we simply don't know. Some people said she had a, a breakdown in the end. One story was that she renounced everything and became a Buddhist nun. I think of all the people in modern China, hers is the autobiography I would most like to read. Anyway, um, among her recently rediscovered works is her essay on the question of women's liberation, published in 1907, which looks now like one of the great tracts of feminism. Another radical attempt to reimagine the world, which there are many through Chinese history. Here she is, her Jun. For thousands of years, the world has been dominated by the rule of man. This rule is marked by class disjunctions over which men, men only, exert proprietary rights. To rectify these wrongs, we must first abolish the rule of men and introduce equality among human beings, which means that the world must belong equally to men and women. And the goal of equality cannot be achieved except through women's liberation. It's fantastic, isn't it? Great. She was in touch with the wider world, of course, in Japan and translation of the Communist Manifesto, Japanese and English, Paris. She was published in one of the Paris French radical journals. But it's fantastic, isn't it, that a text like that, or that we read a text like that from late imperial China, the many surprises of Chinese history, don't you think? So there you are. Well, there's my five voices um, from feminists to grizzled old emperor, poets, thinkers, historians. Um, I've scratched the surface, if you like, but the book's full of those voices. Many of them, I think, I hope, um, little known or unknown in, in, in to Western readers. So I hope I've whetted your appetite to read the book but also to, um, to know more about the story of China. Books are our window on the world, aren't they? And in any view of the history of humanity, China, the other side of the world, the other pole of the human mind, as the great sinologist Simon Lay is called, has bequeathed to us all incredible riches with which to help us imagine the world with fresh eyes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That was Michael Wood. Michael is a regular columnist for BBC History magazine. You can read his latest column on global history writing in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Michael's book, The Story of China, is also out now, published by Simon & Schuster. You can find out more about our virtual lecture series, including upcoming lectures in which you can put your own questions to the experts, at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow we'll be back with an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Cold War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.